0: Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today, if you're an obsessional follower of the news, no doubt your feeds will be full of the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, the legendary Supreme Court justice in the US, and of course the unfolding drama about the appointment of her replacement to that nation's highest court. Today, I'm looking forward, we will of course be looking at that, both the constitutional, legal and political issues, but we'll also be asking, why aren't we more interested in Australia about some looming vacancies on our own High Court, because of the... uh statutory uh, limitation on how old you can be while you sit on the High Court, there are some vacancies coming up. Why is this not more talked about outside obscure legal journals and Chris Merritt's column in The Australian? Surely we should be more interested in our High Court justices, particularly when they've just come up with a string of interesting decisions, terrible decisions, depending on your perspective. Uh, So we'll be talking about that, contrasting the two jurisdictions. Uh, Don't forget that Looking Forward is a product of the IPA. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au to see how you can join or donate. If you're on an Apple podcast, hit five stars now. If you don't like the program, don't don't worry about the rating so much. Uh, To work us through these issues and to make sure we get that five-star rating, I'm joined first of all by my co-host, Chris Berg from RMIT University. Chris, welcome. Thank you, Scott. Great to have you, and of course uh, a, a legal scholar, or a le- a lawyer at least, <laughs> and a scholar, uh, Andrew Bushnell.
1: Oh well, thanks, Scott. I'll try and live up to that uh, that billing. Yes. Law school was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I think you get you get a lifetime permit to uh, <laughs> yeah, they um, probably should, on they legal should look matters. into that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Um we don't believe in such qualifications. But uh we will also be quoting from uh Morgan Beg who does actually spend a lot of time in the um at the IPA working on such matters. But we are going to start uh Chris with the US situation uh with the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
2: That's right. Um Scott, so thank you. As you were given the introduction actually I was reminded of a social media a post I saw from the Gosford Anglican Church in New South Wales, Gosford Anglican Church, maybe the most famous woke church in Australia, <laughs> yes. that put up on its sign um, the other day, "RIP RBG," which um, uh, to jump ahead, I think just shows how yeah. deeply embedded way too much of our political talking points are in American political um, issues. But of course, as you mentioned, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away at the age of 87. um, uh, In the last few days, she was appointed to the US Supreme Court in 1993 under the Clinton administration. um, And of course, in the United States, an appointment to the US Supreme Court is a lifetime position, or at least until you decide to retire. Thus, we are barely two months out from the next election the next presidential election and Donald Trump has the opportunity and the Republican Senate has the opportunity to um, replace a um, very left leaning judge with a more conservative judge. Why don't though we open with a conversation about Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself, of course, because she's not just any judge on the Supreme Court, Scott, is she she's, um, she's almost a cultural icon, particularly on the left, hence my Gosford friends being so keen to to discuss that. Um, uh, you, you've been looking quite a bit into the into the Ginsburg, not jurisprudence, but reputation. Is that right?
0: Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I was a little little bit ahead of the game, uh, Chris. On um, uh, episode seventy four, I reviewed uh, on the basis of sex, which was a biopic uh, that was made. Uh, two years ago about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Uh, she does have a a reputation that is is well-deserved. You know, through her legal advocacy, um, she was able to uh, drive a series of cases that really changed jurisprudence uh, in in America uh, and then ultimately became uh, a Supreme Court justice. And uh, it's been said that in many ways when... Uh, for all those who believe that Supreme Court justices should aspire to some kind of higher ideal and be a little bit uh, above tawdry uh, uh, day-to-day matters, um, she is probably the Democrat's idea of what that should be, and Scalia was probably that for, for conservatives. And um, uh, and when you say left-leaning, the point that I, I made uh, on the podcast uh, six weeks ago was that... Um, in the context of her times, when she was fighting for women's rights and equality under the law, this was seen as a, a radical push against uh, conservative actions. By the standards of today's politics, this is almost reactionary. This, these are not the sort of views uh, that get you invited to speak at, you know, Harvard Law School anymore. And um, so I must admit that uh, I, I look with some uh, I share the the widespread affection for Ruth Bader Ginsburg as a, as a jurist who certainly came from you know the 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 liberal in the U.S. sense left, uh, but I think does stand for a real uh, honourable tradition in American society of fighting for equality before the law, um, and using the courts to further that rather than just as. Uh, opening up the floodgates to whatever progressive cause happens happens to be the issue of the day. Been
2: in, that, in that sense, Andrew. Oh, sorry, Andrew, go on.
1: Let's oh, I was just going to say, in that on that point, uh, I think one of the interesting themes that's come through um, you know, amid the the eulogies for um, uh, Ginsburg has been um, just a, a slight uh, pushback on her reputation from corners further left. Um, yeah saying that a few years ago in a New York Times profile, um, Ginsburg said, when asked about why she didn't retire while Obama was uh, president, she said, if you think that Obama would appoint another judge like me, you're kidding yourself. Um, And people have sort of pondered what she meant by this, but her point seems to be that that she, well, at least viewed from the the radical left now, uh, the point there is that she was very much a, a... her, her feminism was a more of a liberal feminism. It wasn't uh, this sort of communist <laughs> feminism, mm-hmm. um, you know. And, and so there's this kind of um, little pushback uh, against her it, it, just from the left on, on this, this point that she was perhaps too doctrinaire a liberal and that um, a number of her decisions Uh, ended up siding with America's liberal establishment. She was too friendly with big business and and things like this. This is what you you hear. And then there's kind of some of her later decisions um, were more to the the left as we understand it now. Um, So I think she was Mm -hmm. a dissenter in the the famous Citizens United case, which found that um, political spending is a form of free speech. Um, So she dissented from that. And so she sort of became less of a... um, a boomer liberal as she got towards the end of her career. But there is this kind of undercurrent of, of whether her legacy will be, um, you know, in the future, when they when we look back 20 years hence, um, whether she'll be remembered as fondly then as she is now by her core constituency, which is, um, as I say, essentially yeah. boomer and, liberals. And she
0: even, she even uh, uh, criticised Roe versus Wade. Uh, Tim Andrews, uh, the great libertarian... I had something on Facebook this morning with a quote from her saying that Roe versus Wade went too far. Uh, She believed the the law that was being tested um, at the time, uh, criminalising abortion in Texas, should have been struck down, but that should have been it, whereas the Supreme Court in 1973 went out
1: of its way to... To read into the the 14th Amendment of the Constitution um, a right to privacy.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, that, that... to to um, uh, say anything other than um, how enormously good the Roe versus Wade decision was, was is surely heresy from the point of view of the contemporary left.
1: Well, and I think any any um, any decent jurist um, who serves for such a long period of time will have something of a mixed legacy. Um, the right kind of went through this a few years ago when um, Antonin Scalia passed away, and he, of course, was um, famously. Um, friends with Ginsburg, despite their disagreements because each of them, you know, lawyers have this kind of thing of um, recognising brilliance above yeah, yeah. So all others. It's kind so of an what do, they, what do they
0: call it? Associative sorting, basically. <laughs> you, you, you're always friends with someone who's got an IQ within 10 points of you yeah, in either direction. And, and so <laughs> they they
1: have this sort of um, mutual admiration society for their, for their intellects. And, and similarly, uh, Antonin Scalia... Um, Recommended current one of the current justices, Elena Kagan, who's very left wing, was appointed by um, uh, Barack Obama, and Scalia went sounded out for his views by the Obama administration. Said, "Well, you should pick her because she's really smart," um, uh, you know. Accepting like you're going to pick a lefty, so you might as well pick a smart one that I can have some fun with. <laughs> um, and and so that was kind of the relationship they had. But the right kind of went through this when Scalia passed away, which is, um, you know. A, a, an evaluation of you know, how well his, um, his jurisprudence would hold up. Uh, in particular with Scalia, he's, he was also like the flag bearer for a particular judicial philosophy, which made him somewhat unusual, um, which is the, the philosophy of originalism, which is the idea that mm. the US Constitution should be interpreted in line with um, the intention of the people who
0: wrote it. Um, and we will come back to that. Yeah. We should talk about the politics of it all. Well, no,
2: so the, let's start on the politics of, of the of the current moment. Um, and, and everything goes so fast, particularly in the United States at the moment that the current moment is like the politics of this week. Um, so the immediate issue uh, facing the United States right now is um, should Donald Trump appoint a successor? So we are incredibly close to the election. And the Democrats have pointed to the uh, to a president that is purportedly, or has purportedly, been established by the Republicans when Barack Obama was trying to appoint a successor to Anthony Antonin Scalia um, in 2016. Again, just before the election, although, albeit actually quite a bit before the election, in, in I believe March 2016. In that case, when Obama was trying to appoint Merrick Garland, the Republican majority Senate refused to hold hearings saying that the next justice should be appointed by the next president, which of course turned out to be Donald Trump. Um, Now, the Democrats are just up in arms about that. They argue that the precedent that was established in 2016 should absolutely hold in 2020, especially because it's even closer. Donald Trump, obviously doesn't share that view, as we've seen over the last couple of days. But on that argument, um, uh, Andrew, why don't I ask you, um, how, how do you assess that argument? I mean, is this is this wild hypocrisy, or is this a pol- is this politics as she's written? Or yeah, I think this. Wh- how do you think about it?
1: Well, there's two. There's two. Two key differences. The first is that we have a Republican. We the United States has a. There are there I go doing it too. The United States has a Republican <laughs> president and a Republican Senate. So this isn't a case of. Um, a conflict between the administration and the Senate, which is what the situation was um, when Obama had the, the the vacancy in his last year in office. The other key difference, um, and I think Republicans will lean on this quite heavily um, rhetorically, is that the treatment of the Democrats in the Senate of the previous Trump uh, nominee, which was Brett Kavanaugh, um, was disgraceful. Um, and so the, th- there's a kind of militancy in this um, that Republicans will say... where you, What happened with Kavanaugh was a throwback to um, the attempt to bring down Clarence Thomas when he was um, nominated by uh, George H.W. Bush, and before that, the failed nomination of Robert Bork um, it, uh, under Reagan. Um, and so... Basically there's a there's a kind of you know militancy about this among Republicans uh, and and as to the politics of it that militancy feeds into something basically that there is no possible compromise here having campaigned so heavily on taking control of the courts and taking any opportunity to put their judges on the courts they can't possibly front up at the election with a vacant seat they just can't do it um, and anyone isn't, who thinks that there's a possible deal is just ignoring that very simple fact
2: isn't 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 it just a can i just strip it back a bit isn't it a problem that politicians and and commentators as well tend to dress up their raw political calculations in statements of the most highest of the, all principles um, you know it is under no circumstances has a senate ever um, uh, nominated someone in these circumstances when in fact all that they were talking about in 2016 is we have control of the Senate and we don't want to and what the um, Senate is talking about right now is we have the control of the Senate and we would like to do this so we will the only thing that matters here yeah and is that's, those votes and that there's a there's, oh, that's and it's wrong. not just I, I say raw politics but this is the people who are represented to do certain things. Yeah, it is. Point. It is politics. You know. It's
1: what they, it's what they do. And and as always, I mean, it was Trump who made subtext text um, in the in the best way when he said, "Well, um, you know," asked about the difference. He said, "Well, it's a Mitch McConnell thing. He didn't want to do it in 2016. He wants to do it now. So the, that's how it is."
0: But that's also <laughs> that's also. Um, I mean, all this talk about precedents and rules and things that we're project back into the past. At the end of the day, the US Constitution is very clear, which is the President can make an appoint... You know, appoint... Sorry, nominate someone. um, And then it's the role of the Senate to assess that nomination and they either say yes, they say no, or they piss about, uh, which is, you know, another tactic that they could use. And in this case, you know, delay until after the election creates a range of scenarios um that we might consider but um the constitution is very clear that it's it's, it is the role of the senate so all of these so-called precedents and rules and things are only things that have been tried from time to time they've they've never been that hard and 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 mcconnell clearly in 2016 it was essentially well it's like i'm blocking it because i can Uh,
2: why 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 andrew do we why are we so susceptible to this so why are we so susceptible why do we feel the need To dress these raw political claims about the numbers of people in the Senate up in these matters of high principle, and the the why do we have to do this? Isn't
1: this this is how we've gotten into this situation? I think I I think part of it is, um, you know, uh, uh, psychologically a need to feel like you're being reasonable, Um, and what that comes down to, if you if you wanted to be really sort of nakedly utilitarian. About it, the game theory is something like um, we we try and we try and dress up our exercises of power when we're in the majority as principled, so that when we're in the minority, we have some kind of moral claim upon you, um, and you do the same to us, and that's the um, that's the dynamic, um, you know. And so, th- for example, the reason the reason this is even an issue is that. Um, whereas previously you required um, sixty votes in the Senate to confirm, well, you needed sixty votes to end debate about a nominee before it could be before it could go to a straight up or down vote. Um, the Democrats got rid of that when they had the majority, and they were and they were told at the time, um, Mitch McConnell, who's the, now the Senate Majority Leader, but was at the time the leader of the Republican minority, he said, "You you may not." Um, you know you, you you may look back on this with some regret um, that you have changed this rule and and so the only reason this is even possible is that the Republicans who have a 52 48 53 53 47 hold on the Senate um, can push through as they did with um, Brett Kavanaugh they can um, push through their their nominee with those numbers um, and so it, it's 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 extremely. Uh, well, I would say it's infuriating for the the Democrats to turn around now and talk about the norms and precedents and things like this when they changed the rules when it was to their advantage. Um, but it's not just that; it's that it's packaged now with a threat. Uh, if you do this, if you fill this this vacancy, if we get uh, a majority in the Senate uh, and Joe Biden wins the presidency, we will, we will pack the court. Because it's only a convention that the... Uh, well, I think, it's in, I think you have to change the law, sorry. Um, but it's only a law, it's not constitutional, that the US Supreme Court has nine judges. Um, and periodically it comes up that, well, I, I'm in quite a strong position, maybe I'll just put more of my judges on there. Um, famously, um, FDR... Threatened to do it to get the the New Deal, some of the New Deal legislation um, approved. Um, as it turned out, they, they did a deal. It was called the what was it the switch in time that saved nine. Yeah, yeah the, the, um, it was a threat to the court that worked. Yeah, and so exactly, <laughs> and so that's what they're doing now. Is they're, they're threatening the Republicans? They're saying if you do this, um, you know, we'll pack the court. Well, where's your norms there, right? So it's it's obviously <laughs> so, hypocritical
2: so so um let's talk about that for a bit because it, that's interesting and um a group of never trumpers um have actually been talking about this idea of a, a, a sort of a grand bargain that might be cut between the republicans and democrats for the next six months i guess something like that so so the deal would be this and i'll, I'll ask you to comment on it andrew afterwards um the deal would be this if the republicans held hearings on the next pick but uh, right now but delayed the vote until after the election and we knew who the next president was, then in return for that, they would, the Democrats would agree not to pack the court before the next administration. There's also a couple of other proposals um, that the Democrats have been tossing around as well, that would have some fairly significant um, uh, implications electorally. So. There's a proposal potentially to add Washington, D.C. is to give it statehood, which would be clearly a democratic state. There's a potential to add Puerto Rico as statehood, which may actually be a Republican or democratic state. But the idea of just cutting a deal, like you won't do this while you have the numbers and then we won't do this while we have the numbers. What what, what do you think of that? And I, I'm, <laughs> I'll am i just say I'm pretty sceptical, but why don't you why
1: don't you that? <laughs> well, I think, I think, it's naive and it's stupid. Now it's it's naive because you are placing your faith in in Chuck Schumer, um, who's the the minority leader, who would be he would be the majority leader um, in this scenario, uh, and he's actually the the guy who um, presided over the changing of the rules that I was just talking about. So it's 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 naive, but it's also it's also stupid, um, and it, it's stupid because. The Democrats don't uh, can't lose in that scenario, right? The um, they either uh, they either get uh, a majority and they can do what they want, or they don't. Um, in which case, it's kind of moot, right? Like, so so the you don't appoint one now. They don't. They don't. It, what am I trying to say? That it's stupid because you either um, either the seat stays vacant now and then they get to fill it themselves, the Democrats, or um, or the Republicans win um, and we just go through this again uh, anyway. I mean that's the it's 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 giving up a
0: power you have uh, uh, on the basis of a a threat coming from the other side. Yeah, I mean the interesting thing I I find about all this is is how quickly these have actually been resolved. uh, The politics of this. I mean there was a. Uh, So in trying to build up this campaign and raise all these questions, the question is always will there be any Senators who actually deviate? Now there are two Senators who have declared, uh, two Republican Senators, um, uh, one from Alaska, and uh, the other from somewhere else in America, um, such as the depth of my research, who have said that they will not vote before the election uh, on on a nominee of of the president. So so they're down from fifty three to fifty one. So they obviously all this pressure is trying to pile up on other Republican senators. But um, and yesterday I read. Uh, ross doubted's column um which was basically addressed to mitt romney so ross doubted never trumper new york times um you know hates trump and he's addressed this column to mitt romney saying look this has got nothing to do with this this is the constitution straight up and down do your job Uh, you know this is what you're elected for this this unites the republican party like nothing else there are no gray areas here Republicans. And Romney's now come out and, and, and he hasn't said he would vote for. hasn't given, written a black check, but he said if it comes onto the floor of the Senate, I will vote. He has no issue whatsoever with voting on the uh, nominee this side of the election. Yeah. And we are 42 days out and the average is 69 or something, but there have been appointment processes which have been shorter. When I spoke about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg on episode 74, I said um, that window might now be closing, but I don't think it I don't. Hopefully, I didn't say it closed. Uh, it's. For, it's
2: I, I think. I think it's. Uh, there's around two weeks of Senate sitting. Yeah, games, it, so, can so it can certainly be done. be done. This
0: yeah. is not an unprecedented thing. So yes, yeah. it's a bit unseemly, a bit of a rush. But so anyway, no. the point being, your bellwether, your your canary in the cage is Mitt Romney, okay. who who um, I think voted uh, for impeachment. Correct me if I'm yeah, wrong. Yes. Yeah, yes. So yeah. voted for impeachment, but he, but he said no. I'd, I'd vote on this. He did. There's no issue yeah. whatsoever. The, and the,
1: the other, the other element of that is that, um, unlike any other um, presidential candidate, um, Trump issued a list of um, a, a list of judges who would be considered or people who would be considered for um, nomination to the Supreme Court. Um, and this is a list that's been vetted. You know, these are these are career. Um, lawyers with connections to the Republican Party has been been vetted all the way, um, so there's no surprises on this. So if you're um, like Mitt Romney, it's really not got anything to do with Trump. I mean, Trump will make the final selection, but everyone knows the names involved. Um, you know, every, like for example, some of the some of the one of one of the leading uh, candidates is apparently um, a judge uh, Amy Coney Barrett, um, and she was appointed by uh, Trump to the federal court only about two years ago, um, and Romney voted for her then. So there wouldn't be any reason, say, just supposing that Trump nominated her, what would be his objection? It could only be the, the timing. Um, but he, he said that that's not a problem, and, and, and there's no real reason why, from a pers- his perspective, um, the timing of a presidential election should really factor into his decision as a senator.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly what he said. I mean, the only, the only remaining political calculus was, you know, my first reaction had been, well, maybe you, you do the nomination and then you go to the election and that gives further um, uh, in, incentive for uh, uh, swing voters, Republicans to vote. Because remember the analysis um, in the 2016 election was that 10% of those who voted for Trump nominated the looming Supreme Court vacancy as well there was then a vacancy on foot uh, 10% of them nominated that as their primary reason for voting for Trump I mean this this brings out the base like nothing else and it's and it's actually asymmetric as well like it fires up Republicans in the way it hasn't fired up Democrats because Democrats took it for granted for so long that the that if they couldn't get something through Congress they could always get it through the court system And it was only when the Republicans woke up um, uh, and the Federalist Society, uh, over a multi-decade journey, um, identified conservative jurists, built up this body of conservative jurisprudence. And ultimately, um, uh, it was Leo from the Federalist Society who provided the first version of the list to Trump. Um, You know, there's been this long process on the Republican side. So, yeah, they've they've got to do it.
2: let's talk about the electoral consequences then because of course and and we've been talking about this all year um uh the the debate or the contest has really come down until this week to um joe biden making the argument that he that trump has failed on the coronavirus and by waving a magic democratic wand he'd be able to do better on the coronavirus um and donald trump has of course leaned heavily into a law and order story um, uh, in response to the law and order challenges around the United States. Um, This suddenly seems to change the trajectory of the election. I don't think we've seen a very large number of polls or a very useful sample of polls since um, the death of Justice Ginsburg. But um, Andrew, just on the raw politics of this from from the perspective of the presidential election, um, do you think this helps Trump to try to push it forward? Now, I, I do, uh, sorry, before you answer that, I do have just this nagging doubt that this may not 100% be in Trump's interest to do so. Maybe it would be better for him to hold this, but it's very strongly in Mitch McConnell's, the Senate leader's interest to push through. How do you see the politics, the raw electoral politics?
1: Yeah, well, I think um, that the, the, the argument for uh, not making a nomination would be something like... Um, vote for me to make sure this vacancy is filled in the right way. Um, but I think that's too clever by half. Um, I think you you risk I mean people would say, why am I being blackmailed by a president that I've supported for four years? Just make <laughs> just make the appointment. Mate, just do it. Um, And and I voted
2: for you to do this last month and a half as well. Yeah, like this is
1: this is it. This is actually what I voted for you to do. So, um, and so I think the electoral calculation for Trump is actually um, quite straightforward. For that reason, I think um, he can't. There's no downside to him from picking this fight. Um, Do this now. No one's talking about coronavirus. No one's talking about anything else. Um, they talk talk about this um, and it's a it's a promises made promises kept scenario you know trump said i'll be good on the courts, you back me on the courts um, and this would be his third pick um it's a huge it's just a huge cudgel for him going into the election i think
2: it it, it has been interesting though so um what so so on the Republican side people tend to talk about roe versus Wade as the key pivotal issue they do on the on on the left as well. But the Biden messaging, certainly the Biden messaging that I've seen so far about the Supreme Court um, pick has all been about Obamacare, which is a I think a strategically um, interesting way to do it. It's trying to pivot a Supreme Court thing back to where he thinks he is strongest, which is on coronavirus, you know, if you vote for Donald Trump, again, if you if if, um, his Supreme Court nomination gets through, then we're going to be in a worse Healthcare situation than we were already. Um, which, which I, 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 I'm not a American political strategist, and definitely not. A well, I, I might throw,
0: I might throw in there, uh, Andrew, before you pick it up, a scenario that I, that I had painted for me, um, uh, by some different Never Trumpers on the Editor's podcast, which is that um, Biden's worst nightmare. Because um, he's stake out, staked out something in the center, you know, in the center ground, which is his whole strategy. His worst nightmare is that uh, Amy Coney Barrett goes through to the House Judiciary Committee, and Kamala Harris, who is well to the left of Biden, and, and is, um, who Trump is desperately trying to paint um, as as being uh, the the power behind the throne and part of this left wing cabal that's actually going to pull all the strings on Biden. If her line of questioning is, well, you know, you're 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 a a Catholic. Um, Is that going to influence your views on abortion? What if Roe? Are you going to try and overturn Roe versus Wade? And and the story then is about uh, the abortion fault line in America. Um, uh, The um, uh, it's playing to Harris's base in terms of the sanctity of uh, Roe versus Wade, but it would be. Bringing up exactly those issues that Biden is terrified of of having coming up, and that's where and that's where it could really work to Trump's advantage. I think.
1: I don't think there's that much risk of that because the the uh, uh, the Democrats sort of they fold together abortion and health care, um, and so it sort of um, stays on message. I mean, I think the healthcare angle is actually or the Obamacare angle is actually pretty clever hmm. um, because it's kind of a sore point I think for Trump because. Um, he is um, dispositionally um, in favor of more expensive health care. He doesn't have any um, ideological problem with government health care um, himself. He's made that pretty plain. Um, and yet it's one of the chips that he's, he's continually had to negotiate uh, or pass back and forth with Mitch McConnell, um, who has a different agenda, which is the you know, the repeal side of repeal and replace of Obamacare, um, which they did um, partially. Um, so I think it's a pretty interesting angle because it sort of gets at something that when I say promises made, promises kept on the court, um, healthcare is one thing where Trump has not been able to do what he wanted to do. And he keeps making this promise. Um, even now, he's still saying, you know, we're going to get you a better a better package, better, better legislation. Um, and there's been no real movement on that. So I think it's it's quite clever from from Biden, and I think um, playing up. I mean, I think Harris is probably smart enough to. I mean, there's plenty of other Democrats who can raise the question. Um, I think the last time Barrett was up for was nominated for the federal court, um, it was Dianne Feinstein from um, California that asked her about her Catholicism. Um, famously said the dogma lives loudly in you which is the sort of thing which is the sort of thing that you like it sounds like she thinks that that's a famous quote or like a regular exorcist or something (laughs) yeah like a regular line that you would say would actually it's just like kind of your own creepy um fascinations um but i so i I think you know it'll probably play out that way anyway and harris will will get stuck into something else like Hmm. but I, i think um you know, I, I think it's quite a, quite clever. line. I mean, for Biden, it's the the, the line here is, I think, very easy. It's um, we're going to push we're going to push as hard as we can to f- knock over this nominee. Um, you, you can see how high the stakes are with the court. So you you know, if you if you're a, a left, very radical left winger, and you think I'm too moderate, just remember that. Um, You know, you'd rather have me making these picks than Trump. So it's quite, it's quite. The politics Mm. of it's quite straightforward for Biden because the Democrats don't have the power. Um, Whereas for the Republicans, there's these other calculations. But again, I think, um, and to to go back to the very start of this conversation, I think it's just a, it's just a naked power struggle. Um, And I think the politics for both parties plays out. Pretty much straight down the line. If the Republicans can hold together, don't they only need fifty. Don't they need to hold fifty of their senators because the tie-breaking vote is the Vice President Pence. Mike Pence. So, um, if they can cobble together fifty, and you wouldn't bet against Mitch McConnell, um, then I think I think that vacancy will be filled.
0: Yeah. So, Chris, a process in Australia which is absolutely nothing like that at all. Uh, there will simply be a, a media release go out from the uh, office of Christian Porter, the Attorney General. Announcing who the re- replacement High Court judges.
2: That's right. I, it may surprise listeners to know that we also have a High Court um, and it also has judges and they also make decisions. Um, uh, so I might, I might throw to you, um, Andrew, we've spent the better part of half an hour now on the U.S. system and the, um, the, the fervent and excitable politics around justices in the U.S. Um, uh, why, what? how should we view that from Australia? Because it's very, very different here,
1: isn't it? Yeah, the, the, key, the key difference is, um, so they go through this process of um, the president nom- makes the nomination and it has to be confirmed by the Senate um, and they have these hearings where they um, ask the, the nominee about you know, judicial philosophy and background and all, all these kinds of things. Whereas our system... Whether they're
2: Catholic or not, things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Important, important, questions like that. The our system um, takes place basically in chambers. <laughs> the uh, the Attorney General um, uh, of the Commonwealth Government just uh, makes a selection, uh, <laughs> and that is what happens. So, um, and he's you know, he or she is typically a, a lawyer um, and knows all of the lawyers involved. Um, there is some suggestion that the mo- – I think it's the most recent pick is Justice Edelman, who's from Western Australia, and um, he and, – and Christian Porter, the Attorney-General, is also from Western Australia, so not exactly unknown to one another. Um,
0: yeah, so Brandis made the pick, but there was – That's right, that's right. Yes, that's right. But, uh, but it was – uh, alleged, allegedly, due to some uh, some Pressure vigorous from, support from yeah, from Christian. Porter. That's right.
1: That's right. I've got the story wrong. there, The date's wrong, but that's 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 right. And so our process is much more streamlined, um, and we put a lot more
2: <laughs> streamlined is such a nice way to describe yeah, the administrative
1: uh, state. And we put we put uh, we put a lot of faith in in the attorney general, and basically we do so um, on the premise that we don't want the high court to be as political as the United States. Supreme Court, um, and in part the, the the political nature of the Supreme Court comes down to uh, well the written Constitution of the United States. Um, it's wrapped up in um, sort of deep philosophical questions, which our Constitution is is um, bereft of, fortunately, um, and so. Uh, and, and, of course, the, the litigation that they, that they determine in the Supreme Court is is about the, the Bill of Rights mostly, the amendments to the Constitution which grant different rights and how they need to be interpreted. So our process is s- supposedly less political, um, and so we put more faith in the idea that um, judging is a kind of expertise. Um, we just want really clever lawyers to operate essentially as functionaries um, making decisions our high court is also different the US Supreme Court is a constitutional court only uh, the high court of Australia is also uh, the highest court in our uh, common law as well so it, it'll hear um, cases on everything you know including the criminal law and things like that so it doesn't only hear constitutional cases slightly different but the main the main difference is that um, our constitution perhaps is not or traditionally has not been seen as being invested with such deep philosophical questions that um, well, determine and the and until they of
0: actually ca- until they actually start to make decisions you know, which are invested I, yeah. with. I'll jump in reading. here, and
2: um, uh, this is from a great piece that um, Morgan Bag wrote in the IPR Review. But he quotes Greg Craven um, uh, making the argument that um, the the system that we have right now, or the system as it is designed, is sort of designed to select against judicial activism. And so while it selects successfully against judicial activism, that's a good, stable equilibrium. But to quote Greg, once it is accepted that the fundamental task of the judge is to mold the law according to his or her policy conceptions, then the case for introducing an element of political accountability for this essentially political task becomes vastly stronger. And I think Scott and Andrew over the last couple of years, um, uh, you could date it back a lot earlier, but really starkly over the last couple of years, we've started to see that the high court's decisions really can't just be described as that sort of functional utilitarian, you got a job to do um, judicial work.
1: Really, has it been? Well, the, 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 the positivist conception of the law as um, something that's sort of its meaning is contained within itself um, is is only possible when there's a widespread uh, consensus about the values that are used to judge the uncertain cases. So this is the famous um, analysis of uh, the English legal philosopher uh, HLA Hart. Um, who Who um, writes about the what he called the penumbra of uncertainty, the shadow that's cast across the law in uncertain cases. um and this has to be determined in the end by something beyond the law, um which is the sort of the moral consensus of the country. Um, and when that uh, when there's no consensus to appeal to, then uh, these these marginal cases um, become much more contentious. And you want to have, you know, partisans of either side will want to have judges who are sympathetic to their understanding of the values that are going to be used to to, to make these determinations in in uncertain cases. Um, and so, in Australia, like we, we've 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 kind of been we've we haven't always avoided this, but there has been a consensus, at least among the legal establishment, um, that has avoided a, a number of these these controversies. It's only sort of now well i would say that's probably a little bit of an exaggeration but now is a sort of a moment of um, increasing politicization of the court as the courts uh, the values that it uses in difficult cases um, seem to have become somewhat detached from the the long-run historical expectation of the australian people um and if you do you want me to raise the Tom's And th- yeah, love that, case? And so that's well, the love case. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, so
0: uh, just before you do, so I think, um, uh, and and we might before you do. So the uh, the over the last couple of decades, probably the the, the first high water mark uh, was the Marbo case, uh, where uh, Tim Fisher. Uh, the then Deputy Prime Minister famously came out afterwards and said that you know this this is a uh, this decision is a reason why we need to get some big C conservatives onto the High Court and there was a, a lot of uh, confusion around that uh, because it was assumed he meant political conservatives whereas he actually meant legal conservatives but all all of that has sort of been lost in the mists of time and that was probably the last time Australia had a real debate about. Um, who gets to be on the high court and and how their um, legal qualifications uh, should be considered and whether their uh, status as legal conservatives or otherwise should should lead to them being uh, preferred and uh, but here we are again with the uh, the cases that you're about to talk. Yeah, about.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think um, yeah F- Fisher introduced a kind of confusion there because I think he what he really meant was small C <laughs> conservative. He meant like in the in a general. Uh, in the general sense of the the concept as it would apply across various mm-hmm. domains. He, he, didn't, he didn't mean a disposition, see as in, yeah. yeah as in, he didn't mean conservative as in like loyal to a conservative he, party he, he or he meant ideology. Like, or,
0: it was almost like by default, whatever judicial activism is. It's the opposite. Yeah. Not that. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, conservative not that. towards judicial activism, And, and, and so it, it's, it's, it, it raises a, a heap of interesting questions, um, that, that idea of being conservative in the law. Um, and it's come up m- most recently in this um, Tom's, or the, well, the Love Tom's case. There was two cases heard together, um, one involving a, a citizen of Papua New Guinea, the other was a citizen of New Zealand, Um, who were convicted of crimes in Queensland and then, uh, well, they were going to be deported um, under the the Migration Act. The Commonwealth was going to deport them. Um, And what they claimed was that they could not be deported because they had Indigenous Australian heritage. So notwithstanding their lack of Australian citizenship, um, they could not be aliens under the the Constitution of Australia which which gives the Commonwealth power to make laws with respect to nationality and alienage, uh, I think that's the exact wording no anyway, but that's what it is it's the aliens power um, and the the uh, the precedent on this is is quite is quite clear um, and in that case, one of the dissenting judgments was by the Chief Justice Susan Keefel, and it is um, just a great, I think we spoke about this on this podcast, but it's a at, great, at some length, it is a great piece of legal Terrific. reasoning. Um, it's 40 paragraphs of extremely tight reasoning that just says the precedent is that uh, the Commonwealth can determine what it, who, who is an alien. Um, that's it's it. A, it's the plain um,
0: meaning of the Constitution. Whereas
1: in this case, the, the majority, um, now in classic Australian High Court fashion, the majority decided to issue separate judgments. So all seven judges in this case decided that their opinions had to be recorded for posterity. Um, but <laughs> well, I feel we... the same
2: way about my opinions. Though. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, why are we recording a podcast <laughs> if not for posterity? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that said, so one. Of, but one of the uh, the the majority judgments in particular is very interesting on this question of um, judicial philosophy and what it might mean to be conservative about the law. And that was Justice Edelman. Um, Justice Edelman found that. Uh, based on based on the earlier Marbo decision, which had um, which had used uh, Indigenous customs and and uh, law uh, traditional law um, as a as a way of indicating uh, property rights for Indigenous people. So the, the existence of these com- uh, these customs and traditional laws were held to um, be evidence of an encumbrance on the land when the Crown. Uh, purported to, to take possession of it and that's where we get native title from. Justice Edelman in his view uh, these, these uh, laws and customs actually uh, speak to a deeper uh, metaphysical connection between Indigenous people and the, the territory of Australia that the Commonwealth now is sovereign over such that um, the Commonwealth's sovereignty itself is encumbered ...by this connection between Indigenous people and the land. Um, And that is, um, in short, uh, a a political decision. Whether whether we want to recognise that connection or not... ...is actually a political question... ...based on the prevailing values of the country. Um, And so the argument would be that he has overstepped his bounds as a judge... ...and that this is, in some sense, unconservative... And we would prefer to have a judge who, when a difficult case like this comes up, is much more prepared to defer to Parliament, so that uh, the issues can be debated by the representatives of the people, um, which is the traditional Australian way of resolving difficult political questions. So that's one. That would be one sense in which, um, if we if we wanted uh, the Attorney General going forward with with two vacancies coming up in the next six months, um, to to, be, to appoint a small-c conservative, to correct the record, uh, a small-c conservative, it would be someone who was prepared to look at the constitutional structure of Australia um, in which political questions are determined by the parliament uh, and when such a difficult case like this comes up, not attempt to read into the constitution yeah. or successfully so that, read into the constitution. So, so in that uh, sense, questions.
2: Andrew, and we've had a few conversations about this in the past, um, the australian constitution and the american constitution are very different a large part because of what you've described that there's that ideological content so it's easy to say in the united states much easier than here that to adopt an originalist interpretation of a constitution that is relatively i'm going to say libertarian or relatively classical liberal or relatively open markets um, conducive towards individual liberty in those sort of classical se- in the classical sense. It's one thing to say, well, you know, let's have an originalist interpretation of that, because that is going to pursue not that's a conservative interpretation that may pursue conservative ends simultaneously. Now, in Australia, I'm not sure you can do the same thing, can you? Because a originalist interpretation of the Australian Constitution may well imply much greater control of the state, or certainly the Commonwealth government over the economy than than even has been um, accepted in recent decades. And I I wonder, so so, so, to to really be clear about this, there's a, a conservative judge could be one of two things. It could be someone who has a conservative theory of law originalism, or what have you, that they read a statute, and they have a conservative way that they interpret it. Or a conservative judge could be someone that says, well, given any legal, um, given any, any case, I have to try, I will take the side that gives me the policy outcomes I want. Not that I have a coherent theory, but I just want to make sure that there are particular policy outcomes that are conservative off the back of How do you think about that difference? Do you, uh, is this a stark difference that I've made up or is there, is there a challenge <laughs> no, in not, identifying what conservatism is? In
1: it's, a, it's certainly not made up. In fact, it's a, um, it's, a, it's a question that goes to the very heart of um, what conservatism is. Um, is, it, is it procedural? Is conservatism um, a way of uh, thinking about how you might approach any given end? Or is it substantive in that it's an activity you undertake with a given end in mind? Um, and, and in the law, this plays out as, um, as you say, do we want um, a judge that um, applies a particular sort of reasoning or a judge who will essentially do what it takes to to realise an idealisation uh, idea, an, an of society, which is essentially what, when we say like a left-wing activist judge is uh, what makes a, a judge an activist is that um, the, the the judgments are, the judgments are aimed at realizing some kind of ideal society. Um, the American Constitution, as you say, is different from ours in that the, any American jurisprudence has to reckon with um, the existence of natural rights as understood by the American tradition. Um, you know that. The idea that um, rights not given to the government—that there are natural rights not given to the government that are reserved to the people—you um, have to reckon with that. And, and reckoning with that is actually the probably the central question of American conservatism: is what would, it, in what sense, can conservatism be reconciled with natural rights doctrine at all? Um, is an interesting question. Um, but I think when it, on this particular question, that the the I, I would say. The distinction between sort of procedural and substantive approach is somewhat artificial. I don't think it's made up about in, in the sense of like being completely arbitrary, but it is somewhat artificial in that, you know, naturally, just in reasoning, you choose your procedures. Um, you know, there's a dynamic that goes between them. You choose procedures because they're outcomes that you think are better than others, and then you you judge your outcomes in part based on the procedure that you took to get to them. So there's kind of a.
0: Yeah, there are differences. So um, uh, I commend to uh, everyone listening or watching uh, Morgan Begg's article, which is now on the IPA uh, website. Uh, 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 there'll be links in the show notes. Uh, just uh, search for articles. Uh, by Morgan Begg. Um, but certainly one of the things he explores there. We talked, we spoke about the Federalist Society, whether there's scope for something in Australia, but it is quite different, as you say. We have this different jurisprudence. We do have uh, the wonderful institution called the Samuel Griffith Society. I've got some examples of its um, uh, the uh, annual volumes of its proceedings there. Um, but uh, our constitution works very differently. We don't actually get the opportunity to to know what potential candidates. Uh, think about the constitution because it's not something that's determined in lower courts you 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 can't do what the Federalist Society does in America which is examine every judgment or, or um, you can perhaps examine law review articles that's a that's about it um, uh, but so certainly so the Samuel Griffith Society works in a very different way to the Federalist Society but I think uh, certainly on the centre right in Australia, there is some interest in saying, well, we must do better than the, what we did with the appointment of Edelman, who is appears to be stupendously smart in exactly the way you were talking about before. Um, uh, but that essentially means that it, it's like watching um, a chimpanzee with a loaded revolver. You just got no idea yeah. which way he's going to go, and he's there for a very, very long time.
1: Well, the thing about smart people is that their rationalisations are, are better than others. So incredibly they, good. So <laughs> in, they 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 can act on impulse uh, in exactly the same way as anyone else, but then supply reasons after the fact. And and I think. What we saw, and not just from Edelman, but I think all of the majority judgments in that particular case, um, are examples of that kind of motivated reasoning. They 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 wanted to read um, something special about Indigenous uh, culture into the Constitution, and they were going to find a way to do it. And and ideally, so and and that's what it, what it really comes down to is um, is a debate about whose values will prevail in marginal cases. Now. I think we we would all like, in a way, for there for there to be not quite so many large, unsettled questions. Um, and fortunately, Australia has perhaps fewer than the United States. Um, we're not quite so riven um, with these with these grand philosophical debates. But where they exist, um, it is a legitimate um, question for voters. Um, you know, if I vote for this political party, um, will they? not only faithfully represent my values in parliament, but will their uh, judicial appointments represent my values? And so there is some merit in um, the, 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 the way the Americans have gone about it, which is with this nomination process and the hearings and stuff. That didn't happen. That That's not constitutional. That's emerged over time as a way to try and manage this deep-seated political conflict. Um, and our our system may need to... Um, evolve in some way uh, a way of of bringing a way of bringing these disputes to the surface. If it's going to be the case um, that uh, an ostensibly centre right government um, could could I mean all, almost all of these judges were appointed by by liberal <laughs> yeah. by the liberal party.
0: So the, the, the ones appointed by. ALP actually did much better yeah, in this case. <laughs> exactly, and so
1: uh, so it's, a, it's it's a you know it's a legitimate political question. It's uh, not being rude to ask the question.
0: And when uh, Christian Porter does make that announcement, Andrew, we look forward to having you back on. Looking forward to uh, evaluate at least post facto.
1: Yeah, well, uh, I, I mean, what, what, I'll throw up an ex post facto rationalisation for my feelings too. Yes,
0: <laughs> um, and, and we didn't actually get to do the, uh, there, are, <laughs> there are some names floating around out there about who it might be, but we might um, uh, find another forum to do that. We have come to that part of the program, Chris, where we, I think probably briefly today, are going to talk about our, um, our books and culture picks. What we've been that, reading, right. watching,
2: and listening to. So um, I've complained about how it's really hard to find time for reading now, um, in in our new environment. Um, so and and I've also mentioned my. I've, new I've got a book.
0: Board games. I've got a book. It's a <laughs> novel, Chris. but and Anyway, you're a very you're a very bright man. But, but you go. Um, very literate. Uh,
2: so I've done. I I I've, I've been playing board games as we discussed a couple of weeks ago. The board game I want to talk about today is called. Twilight Struggle. It's a board game of the Cold War. It's a two player game. One person plays the US one person plays the USSR. It's published in 2005. Um, the idea is to spread influence around the planet to deal with the events real events that occurred during the Cold War to um, dominate certain regions to um, win the space race. Um based on a series of cards and little influence markers and that sort of thing. It, 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 it's a fun game and it's very, very um, uh, highly rated, but I, I, there's it just it's interesting in that the the mechanics of a lot of these games bring about certain or implement certain assumptions about the way the world works. and this is this one is really clear, and the designers have have admitted that the the game is designed as if the entire Cold War was literally, someone sitting in dc someone sitting in moscow moving pieces around or moving influence like it was something that you could just buy or sell oh we'll take influence out of iran and we'll put it into syria or or what have you um and what's nice about playing with that dynamic is um just really recognizing that sometimes we think of the cold war or even other military conflicts a little bit like that where you've just got a couple of leaders pushing stuff around Map um, and the and the designers have said that this is um, th- this is an explicit mechanism and and they're aware that you know the people in those countries that you are pushing influence around they also had an opinion about this sort of stuff whether they wanted to be part of the free world or the um, or the unfree worlds. The other thing I'll say is also the game's quite good in that it treats nuclear war as a bad option, so the game <laughs> is lost for all players good no- if good there's to know. a nuclear strike.
1: No. Um, well, no, no, I'll note Richard. on that. No, no one cares who's on the Russian Supreme Court. So, in terms of in, <laughs> in terms of in, in terms of influence, um, one empire definitely yeah. prevailed over the other. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's
2: absolutely right. The Gospel Anglican Church isn't as inva- isn't as stacked on that. But it's a it's a great game. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's it's more fun because um, uh, you can actually engage with the certain historical moments um, and highly recommended for those who are, I hope, going to start adopting my recommendations and get into board games because they're good now, Scott. I've said this to you before, board games are good now. They used to be bad. They are now good.
0: Very good. Uh, well, I might jump in here with with my book. Um, uh, it is a novel. You
1: raise the tone <laughs> somewhat.
0: Uh, um, <laughs> I'm going to lower it again. Don't worry. Yeah, no, no. I have previously on this podcast talked about uh, my brilliant friend, the um, novel by Elena Ferrante about uh, two young girls growing up in Naples. Uh, uh, Ferrante is described as the Jane Austen of um, of of Italy. Um, they are. Um, it was. A, it was a splendid book. And um, uh, but it was. There are four books in the uh, in the trilogy of my brilliant friend. It's also being uh, filmed on. Um, uh, sorry, it's being shown on uh, on Foxtel as well. A, a series that's being uh, made of it. They've now covered uh, two of the books. Uh, and I've just uh, I've just finished the third, uh, and working my way through the. Th- through the fourth. So my my notional pick uh, is the third novel, those um, who go and those who stay because one of the friends stays in Naples and whereas the other one makes it out, uh, she's able to get a scholarship to a university in Pisa. Um, She then uh, gets published and actually attains some kind of notoriety. Um, she finds a husband who's not from Naples and therefore is one of those rare men in this book who does not beat his wife. Um, and, and it's sort of this playing out of their, their separate trajectories and a compare and contrast. Um, it's interesting that some of the bits with the, the young woman who uh, got away um, actually bogged down the start of the book. And it's when we return to this uh, maelstrom of Naples and the life of um, Leela, the much mo- much darker and more interesting of the two that the, sort of the book takes, uh, takes off again. Um, I do recommend uh, these books uh, again uh, because apart from anything else, apart from being fascinating about Naples, apart from being great novels, I think some of their insights about... Uh, uh, lives of women in uh, a traditional society coming in through the seventies, the eighties. Some insights into uh, Italy um, and the you know and the terrible times it had in the seventies and eighties. What it's like with uh, the mafia in the south and the corruption of politics. All of these things are in there, um, as well as I think uh, the best use in novel form that I've seen of um, I guess the the shattering of the idea of. That our our egos are a unified whole that we can speak about. I, you know, when I in a in a meaningful way, um, she really brings out this sense of um, the different selves that are battling for control of your body at any given time, and and the way even other people's desires come in and and take over your desires and take over your body. It's sort of um, there's a bit of postmodern literary theory in there, but. It's not done as a theoretical exercise. It's done as a reflection of what's going on in these characters, and um, and all sorts of stuff happens. And you know, so if you're into big novels, you know, Tolstoy, you know, a modern Tolstoyan Jane Austen kind of thing, with like literally dozens of characters doing these amazing things in an historical setting, I can't speak highly enough of my brilliant friend, and in this case, the third volume in the series.
2: Can I also just do a shout out for the soundtrack to the TV show of my brilliant friend as well? Uh, She's magnificent. Hans Zimmer. I listen to all the time.
0: Yep. Yeah. No. Terrific. I think it's Hans Zimmer, isn't it? Yes. Uh, Oh, I
2: can't even. Yeah. yeah, Pretty sure. (laughs) Pretty sure. Max Richter. No, it's Max Richter. Uh, Ah,
0: big pardon. Okay. Yeah. Um, Uh, Andrew.
1: Well, another show with a good soundtrack um, is uh, (laughs) is Yellowstone. which is I was going to Google
2: the Yellowstone soundtrack as you talk, If that's
1: okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, the theme, the theme music in particular for the song is, uh, for the show is, is really good. Um, and it's one of these shows that's like, uh, you know, prestige drama. You know, it's got nice music. It's. I mean, I watch it for the landscapes. It's a show about. Um, it's a show about uh, a ranch in Montana, um, and the different threats to it. So it's actually got a really interesting. Uh, ideological undertone. Um, Kevin Costner plays, uh, he's one of the biggest ranchers in Montana um, and he's sort of, on either side he's kind of being pressed by um, uh, developers who want to take over his incredible piece of real estate um, and turn it into a resort. Uh, And on the other hand, um, the local uh, tribe, uh, Native American tribe, um, who Used to inhabit the the valley and that in which this ranch is is based, but are now um, sort of you know pushed out onto a reservation in the kind of wasteland area um, nearby. Um, so it's kind of he's sort of beset by threats from the future and from the past, um, and it, it, and and that dynamic is actually probably the most promising part of the show. Unfortunately, it's not very well developed. The show is takes place in a world that is just simply not like the real world at all. Um, The political machinations that take place. Kevin Costner is this rancher who, um, and the ranch seems to get bigger or smaller as the plot requires. Um, So it's big enough that he is personal friends with the governor and can install his own son as attorney general. Uh, It's small enough that he might be prey to these developers and outside financial interests. You'd you'd think that those two things don't really go together. Um, But... Uh, it's it it for me the and the reason I wanted to talk about this is just why have I been watching this show if I think it's so silly, um, and it's because it's uh, Montana is called you know big sky country and it's um, and obviously the name Montana is mountains um, and it's this beautiful mountainous. It, wide open landscapes and if you're feeling trapped at home
0: <laughs> as if you are, happen to live in victoria if you
1: happen to live in victoria or any other uh, nascent police state um watching these guys ride around on horses in this beautiful part of the world with so much just open space and freedom um is actually very relaxing notwithstanding the show tries to be tense and dial it up but i only watch it for like the the montages where they overlay some of this nice music and i get get a rural i get a rural setting that i can enjoy and you just dream of the outdoors uh, yeah and i just (laughs) basically dream of the day that i can wander freely
0: (laughs) yeah absolutely yeah no great show and and also the uh uh woke the kingdom of woke has not reached as far as montana this is a no, well, it's interesting. The first, pretty blokey sort of yeah, culture. Yeah, the, fir- the
1: first season is, is pretty, um, it does be a bit more with that kind of uh, conservative idea that um, he's kind of got to deal with the past and the future and, and, and sort of push on with his business and pass it on to his children and all this. The second season it's kind of introduces like a, a bit of a uh, you know, the university professor with kind of a woke agenda. It's almost like an apology for the first one being, the first season being too right wing, but... Um, you no, know, it's, it's 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 like it's worth watching, but it's it is uh, it lives to the idea of escapism. At the moment, it's a it's escapist TV.
0: When you said that, I just had that I just had a rotten feeling that we have actually talked about this on on the podcast before (laughs) we'll have to go back and check the records i've got a bit of deja vu there but you know like like as i said on a previous podcast it's like we're in victoria it's like we're stuck in a christopher nolan movie like times moving forward and backwards i don't know whether we've reread it or not but it's still a good show (laughs) (laughs) yellowstone get around it thank you andrew and thanks again for uh coming andrew i'd also like to say uh thank you Chris Berg, as always, my co-host, for leading us through so many tough questions on looking forward. Thank you, Scott. And a big thank you to you, the listener, or the viewer for joining us today. As I mentioned, this is a product of the Institute of Public Affairs. Please do go to ipa.org.au to join or donate. Uh, Give us a rating on your podcast platform if you can uh, or otherwise just get in touch because we'd love to hear from you uh, as we broadcast into the political void uh, of Victoria and Australia. All feedback is welcome. And we've been having some great messages from listeners lately. But um, other than that, I'll leave it there. I'll say thanks also to Josh in the control room and say we'll be back with more looking forward next week. (laughs)